You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Born to immigrant parents in poverty, Jonathan and his family quickly learned the value and need for community. Something he discovered later was very hard for folks to come by on the street. Receiving an opportunity to study at the University of Michigan, Jonathan earned a degree in informatics specializing in UX design. After producing a documentary on social change, Jonathan developed a tool for restaurants to convert surplus food into funding for local food banks called Food Circles. From there, he helped create Samaritan with the goal to give people without a home the social and financial support needed to leave the street. Samaritan allows volunteers to join the team to sponsor an individual and become part of their circle to help them digitally and then perhaps in person. Both conditional and unconditional cash transfers are part of it so that people without a home can feel a sense of a team behind them and get the help they need. They have housed over 300 people, 15,000 volunteers across multiple cities, LA, Portland, Seattle, Denver, and growing. A thousand people will be served this year. They've had $400,000 in donations flow through them and raised money from investors like Acumen America, DRK, Stand Together Ventures, Social Impact Capital, and others. We talk about in this episode, the causes of homelessness, ways to address homelessness, how volunteers can help a person without a home, why they chose a for-benefit corporation rather than nonprofit, and what some of the challenges have been as well as his advice at the end. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on Startups for Good. Yeah, really appreciate the invitation and getting to meet you, Miles. So how did you get started serving the homeless? That's a good question. Um, it, it actually, it's a good story. It starts before I was, I was, you know, a professional before I was a, like barely when I was born, my parents immigrated to snowy Buffalo, New York in the, in the late eighties um, from South India. And they had just gotten married. They had uh, had an arranged marriage and came over and really lost all of their community on both my mom's side and my dad's side. They landed in Buffalo so my dad could study. My mom wasn't permitted to work. And then I was born. So, you know, on a student visa, a student stipend, my family was living off of 600 to $800 a month. And uh, we never, never lost our housing, certainly. But, you know, we were on food stamps and public housing. Our car was worth about $1,000. I was born in a public hospital at 10 pounds, 10 ounces to a mom who wasn't offered a C-section, wasn't offered an epidural. And it was just a really intense first five or six years. And I, I bring this up because there was essentially a group of people locally that basically adopted my parents and provided financially, provided socially, provided you know, even legal assistance for us as we <laughs> sued the hospital that I was born in uh, around mal malpractice. And yeah, just really provided in so many ways that was 
essential for my parents surviving and making it through those first five or six years at, here in the States. And then when my dad graduated, got a job and things were easy on easy street from there, all things considered. The, the, the way that that ties into to what I do is, is because I got to get a degree in user experience design and I was working on a startup. I, so I went to the University of Michigan, graduated in 2011, worked on a startup, moved to Seattle, Washington in 2015 to, to, to scale that organization and just felt like maybe I was being called to something that had a greater potential for impact than the work I was doing. And as I was thinking about my next step, maybe, you know, taking a couple of years to work at, you know, Google or an ad agency, I just noticed how, you know, pervasive human suffering was around, around me in this beautiful city. And, you know, as a user experience designer, you know, raised with some of the values that I was raised with, I, I wanted to know more about that user experience. And what I found as I, as I just asked panhandlers their story, you know, gave them a couple bucks, talked to them or people living in a tent on the sidewalk or going to some of these tent camps. My, my basic finding was that, you know, beyond the financial poverty, there was this profound sense of, of relational poverty, this, this lack of a team that my parents were given and, you know, this inability to communicate their needs, their true identity to, to a group of people who would be willing or able to help. And so I, 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 I decided to work on this because of, you know, how much uh, that, that social capital meant to my family in those early days. And, you know, the fact that I had some capacity, had some skills of being a, at a startup, and I wanted to apply those, those skills and that interest to, to this population in particular, this very unique user base. So long answer to the question there. So you had a challenging start, you and your family. People helped you, and now you want to return the favor to someone else. It's like provide to them, to, to my neighbor, the, the, same, the same thing that I was given, that my family was given, that team that, you know, you, you need a team, whether you're rich or poor. And the, the reason that these folks often have been so, so long on the street is, is because they don't have a I believe that they don't have a team like the one that my parents were given. Is that the primary cause of people not having a home? Yeah, it's a, it, that's another good question. The, the more the stories I heard that the initiating event was so varied, right? That's so diverse, you know, people would lose their housing for a significant health event or the death of a spouse or the abuse from a partner, substance use, mental illness, of course, uh, rent doubling, you know, a, a job loss. But the common denominator in, in almost all of those stories was a, you know, a lack of, of relationships with family or with friends or with neighbors that would prevent that person from losing their housing. And, you know, it, may, it, it makes sense for me, at least, like, I know that if I lost my job at Samaritan, I would have plenty of friends and family and resources to keep me from having to sleep under a bridge. And, you know, maybe you can say the same. So, you know, it's, it's that lack of a safety net that turns, you know, a, you know, bad circumstance or a bad decision into, into homelessness. And uh, like I, like I mentioned, that safety net was something that was, you know, provided in spades to, to my family as they came to the States here. So it sounds like your mental model is 
shocks come in many people's lives that mm -hmm. throw them off. But those that have that relational human connection are able to call upon friends and family to help them get through those shocks. And those that don't end up sometimes wiping out financially to the point of not having a home. Exactly. It's a great synopsis. Uh, we all have interruptions. We all have significant events in our life. And the people that make it through are the ones that can you know, call upon their resources or their friends or their family to make that gap or that interruption as short as possible. Whereas for someone who doesn't have that, that privilege, that, that small gap for us becomes a chasm for them and uh, can lead to, you know, a cascading effect that ends up with a lack of housing. Maybe this says more about me, but I feel like I hear more people talking about building up that financial cushion to withstand shocks really yeah. relying on yourself to be a saver, et cetera, and mm -hmm. not as much public conversation about having the relationships in your life that help you get through tough times. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, you know, lack of, uh, you know, lack of affordable housing. I mean, it's, you can see it as like, we need rents lower, but you can also see like, we need to, we need to help people have higher incomes. And so, you know, addressing the financial poverty is, is a critical piece to ending, you know, a situation of homelessness, um, for sure. And we, we, we just find that, you know, if you have a social home, addressing that financial poverty becomes a lot easier and uh, higher likeliness that the person is able to do that. And then the physical home can can follow uh, thereafter. So yeah, certainly a lot of the the members that we have served, there's there's definitely a segment that's just like, I don't need anyone. I just need a job and I need to work and I need to save. And once they're able to do that, they're in pretty good shape. So there, there is some of that for sure. I hear a lot of talk about mental illness and about substance use as being correlated with not having a home. And I often wonder which direction causation goes. Do you have a theory on that? Thanks for asking, because it is a, you know, sort of a common understanding that homelessness is caused by, you know, uh, addiction or, or mental illness. From, from what I've seen, it's typically the other way around, where homelessness causes persistent mental illness and, and substance use disorders. I have personally known people who, you know, a year, like they land uh, they, 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 uh, there's a guy, you know, who was living in poverty in Florida and a, a friend in Washington offered him a job. And so with the last money he had, he bought a bus ticket to come all the way out to, to Seattle and meet his friend and work, work for him and with him. A uh, friend was a total no-show. He landed downtown without a penny to his name and he, he was homeless. Right. And, 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 and so like at that moment, you know, if you, it, he, this person, has every ability to work a full-time job, more or less. And then, but he spends a year on the street. And at that point, 12 months later, he can't even walk inside a building and meet with a case manager in a closed confined space. That's how deeply he had been affected by his situation. He wasn't able to come indoors and meet with case managers. Case managers had to go out to them and is like he 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 got housed actually as a result of being a Samaritan member, but he is you know on total totally subsidized housing, and 
he is able to do some volunteer work, but he probably will never work full time again. And it's just like that year of, of, you know, trauma, stress, isolation, a lack of sleep, exposure to, to the substances, to the elements that degrades mental capacity, unfortunately, often beyond the point of no return. So we, yeah, I mean, I know that if, if I was told a hundred times an hour that I didn't exist, if I was trying to like panhandle, or if I had to sleep under a bridge at night, like I, I would probably need some substances or I would probably develop some mental illnesses or, or both. So I, I can, I can empathize. Now you mentioned this individual was housed. I've heard about some handful of cities who've really approached this problem as well, let's give housing to everyone mm-hmm. and not try to address all the other issues first, just address the mm-hmm. lack of home issue. Is, mm-hmm. is that something that you think is effective? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. The The solution to homelessness is in, in the name. It's it's providing a home to somebody and and then, you know, kind of solving for Maslow's hierarchy from there. So, you know, at the base of that little pyramid is you know, uh, shelter, warmth, safety, food, clothing, right? So, you know, you solve for those things and then you look at, okay, let's solve for some of the health issues, behavioral health or uh, physical health. Um, Let's look at, you know, self-actualization and kind of doing things to reach your potential as a photographer or as a landscaper or as a cook, as a writer, as a programmer, right? So, so yeah, absolutely. If we could provide everyone a home, physical home tomorrow, that would solve the issue, obviously, and and keep, you know, anywhere between 50 to 80% of those individuals from ever have ever being homeless again, in, in, in my estimation. Now let's talk about Samaritan. Yeah. Can you explain how it works? Yeah, sure. And and I was just going to add is like, you know, the complexity obviously is, is is like building that housing and where where does that housing go and how expensive is it going to be and who's going to allow, you know, such housing to be built near them. And if we're going to build it out outside of the cities, like how can we get the the services, you know, the the health centers primarily, the, the you know, employment or vocational uh, services, like all of the services that are needed that are in a city that are needed in a rural community for a person with these complex issues to 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 thrive, so it's obviously the solution is, is is easy to say, but very complex to execute. And I think that's you know large reason. And then you know it's sort of the political thing around like, oh, you're just going to like provide these people rent for free? Like, what the hell are you doing um, with my tax dollars and stuff like that? It's very, very complex, but you know that is the solution. And unfortunately, people get caught in you know. 27 months of trying to navigate to to one of those homes. Uh, we need to make the process a lot easier or help people through that process, um, help them survive, help them keep, you know, keep on the right track and 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 help them persist through that that the many challenges around entering and staying in stable housing again. And that's that's actually where Samaritan comes in. You'd asked how it works we will basically give out these smart wallets. Well, what we'll do is we will partner with nonprofits, hospitals, uh, Medicaid insurance companies to offer their target populations a 12-month Samaritan membership. 
So a 12-month Samaritan membership comes with one of our smart wallets, which is a physical physical card, actually, that just is like a really, really nice credit card. It has a QR code on the back of it that allows providers, uh, nonprofit providers, anyone using Samaritan to scan it and bring up the person's account. To become a Samaritan member, these individuals, this is in the context of street outreach or housing case management, are able to to share those top level goals and then break those those goals down into composite needs and action steps. And, and so our technology helps the providers um, issue the smart wallet, activate it, and then capture those goals, needs, and action steps. Really from there, Samaritan members will gain fi- like unconditional financial capital from our network of, of good Samaritans, just individuals and organizations who, who want to help will gain financial capital to meet those needs, things like bus fare, cell phones, uh, storage lockers, work boots, and can also earn bonuses from Samaritan for taking those positive action steps towards those bigger goals. Things like meeting weekly with a housing navigator or a recovery group or you know, a, uh, making it to a primary care clinic to address your you know, acute diabetes. And so as people are meeting needs and taking these positive action steps, we just see that they're a lot more likely to make it through the complex and difficult process to get housed. It's like, it's like, it's like a conversion rate issue. It's like we're trying to raise the percentage of people who can make it through a very difficult, complex, even broken system to the end goal of, of, of having their own housing again. So you're saying the software guides people on what steps to take it a little bit it's more about helps providers capture and 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 suggest you know needs and action steps and then facilitates resources to meet the needs that the person has so if the action step is you know make it from the emergency department to to this primary care facility you know our 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 platform will kind of uh, uh, aggregate the resources for that person to have their bus fare taken care of or a lift ride taken care of, as well as, you know, reward that person for making it to the facility with a $10 bonus or for meeting three times with that provider with a $10 bonus each time. And so there's, there's a sense of helping the person, you know, just meet very material needs on their path to life-changing outcomes, um, as well as reinforcing difficult but positive behaviors around accessing services or addressing critical critical utilities, so on and so forth on a path to housing. So it's both conditional and unconditional cash that's available to people. Exactly, now. yeah. Yeah, it's nice because we're able to attract resources from, you know, people who are really interested in basic income and and just addressing poverty through cash transfers. And then we're also able to, like I said, like help people like participate in their own recovery and and earn these rewards for taking taking action towards their goals. And you have 15,000 plus volunteers involved? Yeah, we've had thousands of, of, of Samaritans step up, uh, just individuals as well as organizations. And uh, what we what we call like on the app, kind of drawing back to my story, like 
join the team of a specific Samaritan member. So you, Miles, can download the free Samaritan app on Android and iPhone and learn about, learn the story or learn the needs and, and the next steps of, of one of our Samaritan members in, in Seattle, Los Angeles, Portland, Denver, I think Jacksonville is coming on next month and, and more to come and really be a part of that team, obviously remotely, unless you're in that city and you want to meet up with that person, which we have we have the ability to do in, in sort of a safe way where the case manager is involved and so forth. But 15,000 people or so have um, done at least you know one act of kindness for one of our Samaritan members through our platform. That's great. So is there digital conversation as well as this sense of support and money? Yeah, definitely. So we allow for, so as, as a Samaritan, let's say you were to sign into the Samaritan app, you'll get to see a member's goals, needs, action steps. If they want, uh, uh, you'll be able to see a bit of their story, life skills, job, job, uh, or like life facts about them, job skills. And you can, of course, contribute contribute to meet a need. And we actually have a charity that processes those donations. So you're giving to an individual, but it's tax deductible, which is really cool. But you can also help help in a sort of in-kind way to meet those needs. So sometimes the need is just like, I would love to have a weekly phone call with somebody who cares, or I need resume help, or I need an introduction in the community to an employer. And if, if you can help with something like that, you can, um, or you can take it a step further and just be like, Hey, you know, I'd love for you to, to, you know, share a meal with my family, or I'd love to grab coffee with you, or, you know, I'd love to pick you up at the shelter you're staying at and get you to target and get you some new clothing, like buy you to church, whatever. And, and we, we obviously that those are like, kind of ne- like not, maybe not immediate things that, that you might be comfortable doing, but over time, the goal is to show you the progress and and the inherent value of an individual so that eventually you are willing to take take some of those deeper steps to to having a genuine relationship with the individual you're you're helping that obviously doesn't need the Samaritan app at some point. So when you started the company, was the model different? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to say that we just started it and it was exactly, you know, what it was, but we have iterated quite a bit over the five or six years that we've been around. Yeah, so tell us more about those learnings and what caused you to change and evolve the model. The the mission has always been to to provide financial and, and social capital to people who don't have a home and help them use that to, to reach life-changing outcomes and, and get get into housing again. That, that's always been a constant, but then how we do that and who pays us to do that has changed radically over the years. So the first way that we looked at sourcing financial and social support for folks was literally through the passerbys that would be walking, driving, busing, biking by a person in, in need on the street. And uh, our... We, would, we were actually giving out Bluetooth low energy beacons to these individuals to generate a signal that would go out about 30 yards. And basically we would get up as many commuters to download the Samaritan app as possible. And they would get a push notification by passing within that 30 yard radius. 
And, and so that's, that's how we were sourcing financial social support. Nowadays, we all, almost all of our Samaritans are, are giving remotely and we have more, more like corporate groups and foundations involved who are, you know, sort of giving from afar versus that, that street-based nearby use case uh, to the extent that actually we don't give out the Bluetooth beacons anymore. So we're, as we sort of gain credibility, we're sourcing capital, both in a financial and social sense from, you know, different and bigger sources the the street nearby giving moments um ultimately we wanted to see more capital transfer to the to the to the population so then 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 we were doing so um we we focus on other sources and then and then who has like paid us to to do the work and keep the lights on that's that's also changed uh, quite a bit yeah so who pays today today we get our contracts from human services or nonprofits that want to use Samaritan as an accelerant um, or engagement and support tool for, for the people that they serve on, on the street. And so we've done that for a bit, but I think that the bigger opportunity is getting these contracts from um, hospitals and health systems, and then even, even Medicaid uh, or insurance companies that provide Medicaid coverage to lowest income individuals in the States. It turns out that you know when you're experiencing homelessness, you're eight times more likely to land in the ER or the hospital than uh, a fellow Medicaid member. Uh, you're six times, sixteen times more likely, or no, it might have been actually thirty times more likely to land in the ER than someone like me, you know. And so there is a significant operational and financial cost to our health system that is borne by these hospitals and, and Medicaid plans, and so they they see the value both financially and operationally for providing everyone a home. And, but they're not able to just pay people's rent because they're unhoused, but they can, you know, provide a 12 month membership to Samaritan, which is pretty cheap. And, you know, a significant percentage of those people they give a membership to will end up, you know, radically improving their lives through the support that they receive. Which, which of course, sorry, uh, doubles back to, you know, again, operational and financial, either cost savings or in some cases, a revenue generation for these, these uh, nonprofit and for-profit entities. It's amazing to me that that's what we agree on broadly in this country is that people should get medical care, regardless of being insured or not. That becomes increasingly the gateway to all kinds of mm. other services because that's where all kinds of problems show up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my family was on Medicaid and it made a big difference for us. We, we need more resources poured into public services, but what we have is, is better than a lot of countries offer. So I'd love to hear more about your decision to organize as a company and if you considered any other structures like nonprofit, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. You know, from from the start, we we wanted to deeply impact people without a stable home at scale, and we we believed that if we were less reliant on donors to fund our operations and more reliant on on customers, we would be able to access the capital needed to grow faster than a nonprofit, and potentially have more impact quicker 
like more social public impact as a, as a company than as a nonprofit. So that was a belief and, and, you know, working to, to validate that right now still, of course, but that factored in the, into the decision. And then similarly, there are some examples, but not a ton of examples of nonprofits that have successfully accessed the startup resources if they're, if they're like technology based or, or, you know, not providing direct services, let's say providing case management or job training services. Like we don't offer those services. We are a platform that can be used by providers to radically improve outcomes for, for folks in the situation. So, you know, donors often have a, have a preference to give to direct services versus to technology building. Like they want to hire, they want to pay for a skilled job case manager versus a Android developer. But what we need is an Android developer. And so not to say that it's been, you know, totally easy being a, a public benefit corporation, which is, you know, the company route. But for those issues around our mission and our goal to scale and the access to startup capital as a not just a nonprofit focused on technology, that's how we have stuck with the decision to to yeah, be a public benefit corporation. And how has it been raising that financial capital as a public benefit corporation? Yeah, it's 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 been it's been it's been good. I mean, it's been difficult for sure because a lot of you know pools of capital like like for-profit capital are focused on pure returns and you know sometimes when they see the population and the user base and that we serve they run the other way but but you know i i i think that folks that are are more familiar with the healthcare space and what the needs are and what the costs are and what the incentives are get really excited about our potential our potential or like our business model and our potential growth you know to serve tens of thousands of lives like this there is just not a lot of capability in this space to better reach, engage, and support populations that don't have a phone, that don't have a bank account, that don't have an address, that might not have legal documentation. Like the ability for healthcare providers to, to provide you know follow-up care to somebody instead of just seeing them in the ER all the time, like is, is just so, so difficult. And so we're solving a massive, massive problem in, in the healthcare and, and, and also social services space that is, is unsolved for. That's like fairly unaddressed in terms of other solutions. And so I, I think that, yeah, investors that are familiar with this space get really, really excited about what we're doing from, from a company and, and, and growth standpoint, but then of course, from, from a do, you know, double bottom line standpoint as well in terms of impact. Yeah. So what type of investors are right for a public benefit corporation like yours with this kind of focus? Yeah, like I said, you know, healthcare, healthcare VCs or healthcare uh, angels, there are some, there's some capital focused on like social services improvement and, you know, technologies that help nonprofits, you know, raise more money and do more good and, and report better outcomes. So there are some investors in that space. Mostly it's been in, in like the digital health space 
we, I don't think we've done anything with like fintech investors, despite obviously having a financial intervention. And then there is this, this uh, group of uh, impact investors, investors who are looking to invest in sound businesses that have the potential for scale that can generate returns, of course, but in, in both a financial and a societal sense. And so there are some investors who are who who will only put money into things that obviously have commercial potential like Samaritan but then have like a strong uh societal benefit if they're successful so that's you know another area and then and then also yeah yeah I, I would I would say that and then there's yeah actually that would that probably be about it <laughs> what's been the most challenging part of building this? I think, you know, a lot of people say like, you know, how do you, how do you generate trust with the user base and the population? And, you know, do they just throw your wallet away and they don't know how it works or they don't want to be tracked or this or that. And, and that actually has been like one of the simpler pieces in, in that, like pretty quickly, we were able to demonstrate tangible value to the population and, and, and gain trust. And, and those individuals spoke with their other friends that are experiencing homelessness. And, you know, I think us creating tangible value in a financial and social sense and, and, and seeing a large portion or a majority of our members kind of like continue to benefit and use the service as long it was as, as it was available and, you know, materially improve their access to services or critical utilities, or of course, uh, housing like that, that piece has been like not to say that we have figured it out, but that that has not been the hardest part of Samaritan. I think the hardest part has been a attracting the resources to hire, you know, world caliber talent. And because, you know, something like this hasn't really been done before. And, you know, we need to have an incredible team to to pull it off. And that's kind of uh, attracting the capital to do that is is sort of a function of you know, finding and and securing you know partners that can can pay your pay your bills and then some, and so you know figuring out not how to create value for our user base, but how to create value for our our like who our customer is, whether it's the nonprofit or the hospital or the insurance company, and 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 you know proving that out like our our target customers changed quite a bit as we have iterated through, you know, various models on, on like how we could sustainably provide this service to people in need. And so I think the, the, the last five, six years, like the reason that we've only, we're only, you know, set to serve a thousand people instead of 10,000 people is because uh, this year it's, it's like that process of like identifying a, 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 a core repeatable, sustainable, scalable customer. Yeah, it's certainly challenging. It's a wicked problem that you're working on, as they talk about for a mm -hmm. high level of complexity. What trade-offs mm -hmm. have you had to make between mission and profit as you've been building this and trying to solve for this? Well, let's say we were just able to focus on mission and we had, you know, Mackenzie Scott just made a hundred million donation uh, to Samaritan, then we could just build the services, provide the services uh, ourselves, you know, that like the case management component, 
And then we could just go into any city and just give our smart wallets to any person on the street. Like we could do that tomorrow and have the infrastructure to support these individuals off the bat. And that's, that's, that's like, you know, what I would love to be able to do on from, from like, you know, the sustainability and, and like the, 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 yeah, just sustainability perspective, we can only give out Samaritan memberships to target populations of our customers, which, which drastically limits, like, you know, you see a person in need, I'd love to give them a Samaritan membership, but I can't because it's got to be tied to a customer. Right. And, and so that sort of limiter is, is good because it, it, make sure that we're spending activities on things that are going to be sustainable for our jobs and our livelihood, but, you know, can be frustrating when you see so much need and, you know, we only have contracts to serve 200 people in this city. You know, that's, that's not where we want to be. So that's, I think, a tension between mission and, and sustainability or profit that, that I can think of if there are any, billionaires out there that want to give us $100 million, we could radically, radically <laughs> ramp up how many memberships we were providing in many different cities very quickly. Making the appeal right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyone who's listening in, I love it. You're asking for the big bucks. So I think you're saying that the, the biggest trade-off is how many customers can you serve and how fast can you scale given the resources you have? Or it's like people, it's like, you know, if we could just, if we had the resources to just focus on mission, we wouldn't have to worry about customer relationships at all. We could just serve as many users, as many Samaritan members as, as, as possible. But since we, we're doing things sort of by the book as a company, meaning you need to have customers, you can't just give Samaritan members memberships to anyone in need. It has to be, you know, the, the health, health plan or the hospital or the nonprofit will be like, it's these hundred people that I need, I really, really want to serve with this intervention. And I, and I can only afford right now, or I'm only willing to pay for 50 memberships or hundred memberships versus 500 or a thousand or 2000, which totally makes sense. And, you know, we're on a path to, you know, proving value for some national customers that if we can replicate the types of outcomes that we have seen the stories that we have seen in deployments to date, they are going to give us hundreds more, thousands more people to serve because they have hospitals in 25 states or they have, you know, United Healthcare has Medicaid offerings. They serve Medicaid members in 36 states. And we're starting with one state with them in Honolulu, actually, Hawaii. So, you know, we have done a lot of groundwork the last two years to build these customer relationships that can really scale uh, groups like United Healthcare, Anthem, Aetna, Common Spirit Health. Like these are, are, are national brands that could take us national and give out thousands of Samaritan memberships if we can prove value during our upcoming phase ones. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I know. No kidding. Any advice for other founders or aspiring founders? If I was to do things differently in starting Samaritan, I would have loved to have found that, like, I guess we focused on a user first and we were solving, creating value for them and just trusting that we could find 
and solve for the the customer as a as a, as a, as a result of creating value for the user base whether our customer was going to be donors and we were going to you know be a nonprofit or you know organizations we were selling to as customers we 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 thought about solving that piece second right user user base create value for the user first and then get the customer second if i was to go back i mean maybe you know really validating a paying customer first or or in concert with the the creating value for the user i don't know what samaritan would have looked like if we had gone that route maybe we would be just some sort of tech tool for hospitals and we wouldn't really be executing the mission that we are today but i think yeah like we really focused on the user and trusted that we'd get the customer afterwards maybe i would you know advise get the customer validated as well as the user <laughs> even if that means your solution initially might look a little bit different that's sage advice from hard, hard one and thank you for sharing that yeah other things i mean you know there's like this this tension between you know persistence and grit and ignorance <laughs> and you know foolishness or you know, are, am I like persisting and showing perseverance or am I just ignoring the writing on the wall? And, and, you know, so that's, that's a question that a lot of entrepreneurs have to ask. And it's been, it's been hard for me to, you know, consider Samaritan a failure and to stop and to, to spend my time and, and resources on something else. So I actually don't know whether I'm more ignorant or, or, you know, just showing perseverance, but I will say that the only thing you don't have more of is time. Like you can always, well, people in situations of privilege, like myself can always find more money, but no one can, can recoup time. It's not worth building something that nobody wants. And, and I think that is key. Like the sooner that you can, you know, fail or, or like validate that your concept is not what's needed in the world or in the market or by donors, you know, whichever model you choose, the better. If you can get to that fail point in four months instead of eight months, like that's four months you've given yourself back to, to, to do something that people need. So I, yeah, I think that's, that's a important thing to remember. Yeah. And, and then I guess another thing I'd say is Life isn't about doing what you love, in my opinion. It's about solving what you hate. And, you know, I don't love <laughs> uh, writing emails or, you know, pitching investors or, or you know, whatever. But I, I, I am solving something that I really, really hate, which is people on or near the street don't have the financial and social support they need to survive, to, to thrive. So you know, that's what I do. That's why I do what I do. So. Um, Maybe that'll be helpful to somebody. Wow. I really like that framing. Solving something you hate. Don't focus as much on doing something you love. Interesting. Wow. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for, thanks for the invite. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today, 
and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.